The time to get ready was over. The battle was on its way. The British really were coming this time, and Continental Army Major General Charles Lee was going to have to take them on. He had spent the first part of 1776 fortifying New York City and Williamsburg, Virginia, against anticipated British attack, but so far, it had not materialized. Charles and his dogs ran snout first into the Loyalist Committees of Safety in each of these cities, who were doing their best to interfere with his preparations to fortify the towns and keep the British supplied with provisions and information about what he was up to. Being an insufferable, goal-oriented pain in the ass, and armed with the massive authority granted him by the Continental Congress, Charles didn't humor the cowardly and traitorous committees of safety, who really only seemed to be concerned about their own safety. He took steps to neutralize their power and cut off the aid and comfort they were sending to the British. He offered them a choice between loyalty to the revolutionary cause, which included a security deposit of half their property, or exile to the interior of the continent, where Native Americans and marauding wildlife would be a much bigger threat to their safety. British General Henry Clinton, anchored off Cape Fear, North Carolina, figured that it was time for him to do something to shore up the Loyalists that Charles had been picking on and make up for the Loyalists' defeat at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge in February. He decided that taking Charleston, South Carolina, would be just the thing. While General Clinton bobbed around offshore at Cape Fear, Charles Lee and his dogs went to Charleston. One effective tactic the British had used in the southern colonies was inciting slaves to revolt. They pledged freedom to any slave who came over to their side and loosely promised to provide them with weapons and send them out to wreak havoc through the countryside. African-Americans outnumbered whites in South Carolina, and there had been a slave revolt in 1739 in which 25 whites had been killed. The specter of an uprising caused everyone in the region to lose their minds and focus on that instead of any kind of impending British attack. It also tended to exacerbate pre-existing class tensions between rich, slave-owning whites and poor, slaveless ones. The promise of a slave revolt was the metaphorical match the British liked to throw into the proverbial tinderbox of the colonial South to distract everyone and keep them off guard. Charles Lee, as it turned out, could care less about slave uprisings or class tensions. He, at least, could focus on impending British attack. The revolutionary president of South Carolina, John Rutledge, wrote to Charles that he needed to get to Charleston right away. I wish you and a powerful reinforcement were now here. For God's sake, lose not a moment. On his way into the city, Charles encountered slaves heading toward the city to find refuge with the British and refugees running the other way to get out of town before the hell and damnation started raining down on them. Charles cut through the haphazard mess, as he had done in his other postings, and started to organize the defense of the city and the deployment of the local militia. Some of the South Carolina militiamen refused to follow his orders, and supplies were delayed. John Rutledge, who knew that Charles was Charleston's best hope of survival, put the militia under his command. But he left himself a back door, whereupon he reserved the right to veto any of Charles's orders and insisted on a major role in preparing the city's defenses. Knowing Charles as we have come to do, and his history of being an oppositionally defiant crank, I expected him to bristle at this kind of interference, but he was smart enough to realize Rutledge was one of his few allies, so he amicably toured the city with Rutledge and made several suggestions for its defense. Cranky, weirdo, dog-lover though he was, having a general on hand with deep experience in the British Army was a huge help. Charles surveyed the landscape and accurately predicted where General Clinton would land his troops and station his ships to bombard the city. None of these areas had been fortified prior to his arrival. 
He ordered houses along the waterfront demolished and used the materials to strengthen other parts of the defensive network. He imposed a 9 p.m. curfew on the town to keep those pesky loyalists from sabotaging the effort or sending intelligence to the enemy. Never a diplomat, Charles didn't make friends while in town. He was inspecting an artillery battery north of Charleston and asked, what damn fool planned this battery? As it turns out, it was the Chief Justice of South Carolina who had placed the cannon. He may be a very good Chief Justice, Charles said, but he is a damned bad engineer. Reports of Charles's less than gentle style made it back to the Continental Congress. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney said that Charles was a strange animal but very clever, and that we must put up with 10,000 oddities in him on account of his abilities. The South Carolina Chief Justice and amateur artillery officer said, Every idea of Lee's must be right, and of course, every contrary idea and every other person must be wrong. I'm not an oppositionally defiant crank, as far as I know, but even I want to tell Mr. Chief Justice to stick to the law and let those who know stuff about cannons deal with the artillery. The Chief Justice, William Henry Drayton, later became a delegate to the Continental Congress, where he was a serious critic of General Lee. Charles was especially hard on Colonel William Moultrie, who was in charge of fortifying Fort Sullivan. He thought Moultrie was too easygoing and didn't enforce proper discipline. He told Moultrie, when you issue any orders, suffer them not to be trifled with. Let your orders be few as possible, but let them be punctually obeyed. He recommended that the fort should be abandoned, but Rutledge and Moultrie convinced him it could be held, arguing that evacuating the fort would ruin morale in town. The British attacked on June 28th. Charles was observing the battle from Heddle's Point across the channel from Fort Sullivan. Once the British warships moved toward the fort, Charles advised Moultrie to retreat, but steady fire from the fort, wild seas, and high winds kept the British from executing their attack plan. Once it became clear that Fort Sullivan's defenders were driving the British back, Charles crossed the channel to the fort. His arrival bolstered the defenders, and the British called off the assault and retreated. Charles warned the victorious militia not to get complacent in the wake of the victory, ordering that Haddell's Point and Fort Sullivan be further reinforced. In his letters to Congress and General Washington, Charles gave credit for the victory to Moultrie and the militia, but knew that the British attack had been thwarted as much by unpredictable seas and weather as by the defenders. He nonetheless wanted to take advantage of the victory and launch an assault against the British. General Clinton denied him the chance, pointing his fleet toward New York. Charles then turned his strategic eye further south. The British had been conspiring with the Cherokee to harass the colonists from the interior, and the English base in East Florida posed a threat to Georgia and the other southern colonies. Charles requested that a military operation be launched against the Cherokee, which ended their cooperation with the British. He led a force of 2,000 men to Georgia, planning to drive the enemy out of Florida and, as he told the Congress, reduce it to an American province. He asked his old pal Governor Rutledge for a battalion of South Carolina militia to go on the Florida campaign, but Rutledge refused. The South Carolina Committee of Safety, in keeping with the proud tradition of the New York, Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina Committees of Safety, refused to help. Charles lost it. Is it just that the other colonies should be obliged to march to their assistance and refuse in their turn to assist others? Charles was finally forced to haul out his authority as general appointed by Congress to watch over the safety of the Southern District and order Rutledge to supply the troops. The delay cost the expedition several weeks, but Charles and his forces left for Savannah, Georgia in early August. South Carolina, 
and their Craven Committee of Safety in particular, wasn't sad to see him go. Between you and I, one correspondent of South Carolina Chief Justice William Drayton, the wannabe artillery man, wrote, The general seems to be an odd fish, and I am glad you are about to get rid of him. The Chief Justice didn't disagree. Charles met with leading Georgia revolutionaries when he got to Savannah, where they agreed with his plan to take Florida. They didn't, however, agree to provide troops or supplies. They probably should have formed a committee of safety. It sounds perfect for them. Charles Lee had always seen the war as an overall American endeavor. As one of the few revolutionary leaders who had traveled extensively throughout the colonies, he accurately surmised that unity was their best hope for victory. But everywhere he went, he found provincialism eclipsing the need for a unified front against the enemy. Each colony was only concerned for its own welfare. The idea that Virginia or South Carolina would send troops and supplies to help Georgia was a thought as odd as Charles Lee himself. He determined to press ahead with his Florida campaign anyway, planning an assault on St. Augustine. The timing was horrible. It was summer in the South. Heat, mosquitoes, and disease were taking out the troops before they ever had the chance to engage the enemy. And then, Charles was ordered by Congress to go back to New York to help out with the impending British attack. British General William Howe and his brother Admiral Richard Howe had landed 32,000 troops on Staten Island and stationed 450 warships within striking distance of Manhattan. This operation would be the largest overseas British expedition until the Allied invasion of Normandy during World War II. General Washington, who had gone to New York and continued Charles's defensive plan for the city, was trapped between the English Army and Navy. Things were not looking good, so Charles Lee was once again dispatched to save the day. The move to New York for Charles was interesting on a number of levels. It made clear that he was seen for the moment as the indispensable man. His recent successes in the South stacked up pretty well against George Washington's accomplishments, or lack of accomplishments, in the war thus far. Although the British didn't attack Virginia or North Carolina while Charles was there, the fact of his presence and the work he did to defend against attack was put in his win column. And a successful defense of Charleston against an actual British naval assault gave everyone confidence that he could do the same for New York. His journey north wasn't the victory lap of a triumphant general, but Charles took his time and allowed himself to be cheered as the hero of the hour, spending quite a lot of time in Philadelphia with the Continental Congress. One of the delegates wrote, I am confident he will be better than 10,000 men to our army. Charles huddled with John Hancock, delivering reports on the Southern Command. Charles was widely viewed as the solution to the New York problem. The Army's morale was low and prospects for victory were not looking good. John Adams told his wife Abigail that Lee's appearance at headquarters would give a flow of spirits to our Army there. Some officer of his spirit and experience seems to be wanted. I feel like it's important to remind everyone, John Adams included, that George Washington was already there, and apparently, it wasn't enough. As Lee biographer Philip Pappas wrote, the revolution needed to be saved, and it seemed its savior had finally arrived in the form of Charles Lee. We've been studying train wrecks a long time. On your history's train wreck scorecard, we're at the point where the train wreck is on top of the world and everything is going their way. All they have to do now is not screw things up for themselves on purpose. Cross your fingers for Charles Lee, everyone. He stopped in New Jersey on his way north. As the continental expert on city fortifications, he inspected Princeton and Perth Amboy. While there, 
he learned of the commission the Continental Congress had sent to meet with British Admiral Howe, where pardons were offered in exchange for renouncing independence and dissolving the Congress, but no other substantive concessions to the colony's complaints about taxation without representation were on the table. The British believed they were on top after victory over the Continentals at Long Island, and the king and his ministers were only offering escape from prison or the hangman's rope. They were not inclined to resolve any of the issues that had brought about the conflict in the first place. Employing the same strategy they had used with the Committees of Safety, Congress sent a delegation of John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Edward Rutledge to meet with Howe, even though Adams and Franklin expected no positive results from the meeting. When initially contacted by Howe about pardons, Franklin had written back, directing pardons to be offered to the colonies, who are the very parties injured, can have no other effect than that of increasing our resentments. It is impossible we should think of submission to a government that has with the most wanton barbarity and cruelty burnt our defenseless towns, excited the savages to massacre our peaceful farmers and our slaves to murder their masters, and is even now bringing foreign mercenaries to deluge our settlements with blood. An emissary sent by Howe to George Washington's New York headquarters was sent back with a similar message from the commanding general. Those who have committed no fault want no pardon. But they had the meeting anyway. Howe admitted he had no authority to do more than offer pardons in exchange for ceasing hostilities, ending the Continental Congress, and giving up on independence. One clear sign of the way things were going to go was the back and forth over recognition. Howe had been ordered not to acknowledge the Congress or the Continental Army as legitimate, going so far as addressing George Washington as Mr. Washington. The delegates demanded recognition of the Continental Congress and Washington's rank as a condition of the meeting. The British didn't see the army or its general as worthy of formal recognition, even though they had sent the largest military force in their history to engage it. They didn't see the Congress as valid, even though nullifying its declaration of independence and dissolving it were conditions necessary in order to receive pardons. So this whole, let's all sit down and work this thing out, wasn't really all that sincere. It was done with the same kind of paternal arrogance a powerful tyrant used when dealing with his weaker subjects, or what we might call business as usual for the British Empire. And, as was discovered years later, there was a very interesting exception to that list of pardons. John Adams, that lovable, stubborn pain in the ass, did his usual thing at the meeting, because he just couldn't help himself. Lord Howe told the commissioners that he could not view the American delegates as anything but British subjects. John Adams replied, Your lordship may consider me in what light you please, except that of a British subject. Howe said to Ben Franklin, Mr. Adams appears to be a decided character. You bet your ass, your lordship. As it turns out, his lordship Admiral Howe and his boss the king already had their minds made up about John Adams. He was the only revolutionary leader who would not be granted a pardon. George Washington, who was actively taking up arms in the field against British soldiers. John Hancock and Sam Adams, who had been stalwarts for defiance against the crown from day one, and all the other soldiers and members of Congress were off the hook. But not crabby old pain-in-the-ass John Adams. Somehow, the British knew Adams had to be taken out once and for all for this whole American independence thing to come to an end. You just keep being you, John Adams. Just keep being you. Knowing the British like he did, Charles Lee said it was folly to have even had the meeting with Howe. The British wanted unconditional submission and a return to the way things were back in the bad old days of the 1760s. King George, apparently, 
wanted to gaze upon John Adams' dismembered head stuck on a pole outside his window while he ate his breakfast. Charles suspected the pardons were just a ploy to put military operations on hold and undermine American independence. He warned that any more meetings between Congress and the British would convey an idea that members of Congress themselves did not consider independency absolutely fixed. The congressional delegation reported back that the meeting was a bust. Lord Howe has no propositions to make us, and that America is to expect nothing but total unconditional submission. And, although he didn't know it, John Adams could expect a long boat ride, a stay in the Tower of London, and execution. Listeners, it's time to write your congressman. John Adams really needs some monuments built to him in the nation's capital. He was more of a threat to the British back then than any other revolutionary leader. Let's make him a big deal to us. Anyway, back to Charles Lee, who was a pretty big deal himself in 1776. Since this series of episodes is about the indispensability of George Washington, it's worth pointing out that as 1776 was winding down, it was John Adams who the British feared most on the political side, and it sure looked like Charles Lee was seen as the best general the Continentals had when it came to the dark days in New York after the British victory at Long Island. General Lee was hourly expected as if from heaven, with a legion of flaming swordsmen, one Continental officer wrote. Henry Knox wrote that Lee's experience would be of service to us in conquering those Philistines who have come up against us. One of Washington's aides wrote, You ask if General Lee is in health and our people feel bold? I answer both in the affirmative. But what about Washington himself? George relied heavily on intelligence. The popularity of Charles Lee and all the work he had done to get to know congressional delegates and the principal leaders of the revolutionary cause wasn't exactly a big secret. If ever there was a general who could take his place, Washington knew it was Charles Lee in the fall of 1776. He might have preferred Charles stay in the South or gone to Canada, but at that point in time, George Washington wasn't the one giving Charles Lee his orders. That fact alone had to make him nervous. He greeted Lee cordially and renamed Fort Constitution on the New Jersey side of the river Fort Lee. The two toured the colonial defenses, Lee offering his expertise and Washington taking his suggestions seriously. But there was a new wrinkle, and not one that was going to work out well for Charles Lee. For the first time in his service in the war, he wasn't going to be the highest-ranking officer in the field. He was going to have to take orders from someone else, which, as we've seen, he's not great at. The Battle of New York and its aftermath is where Charles openly disagrees with Washington's strategy and tactics for the first time. And, being Charles, he makes no secret of it. As news of the Continental disaster reaches the Congress, George Washington isn't looking very good at all. And because Charles was telling everyone that he would have done things differently, many revolutionary leaders thought the time had come to give him his chance. If they had, he certainly would have taken it. George Washington needed to do something big to save his command and the revolutionary cause. Time was running out. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks, and thank you so much. 
If you have your own ideas about how to unite a bunch of self-interested colonies into an effective fighting force, or think that lawyers should have their shot, pun intended, at placing cannon on a defensive line, you can Twitter to add History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, the Continentals fight for New York, which does not go well. George Washington's reputation takes a beating and his job is on the line, mainly because there was a well-qualified alternative with a proven track record, not just waiting in the wings, but actively campaigning for the job. But George has something planned to save the day. Something big. The Commander-in-Chief's luck starts to turn in December 1776. It's going to be Christmas in um, December for George Washington. But not so much for Charles Lee. Stay tuned for The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 6. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff, to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures. And I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, so